This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Talking today to Ian Mortimer about his new book, Millennium, How Civilization Has Changed Over a Thousand Years. Ian, it's a it's a big subject and a, and a long space of time. And and talk to me about what invention is is technological invention is not synonymous with change. I mean, how do you uh, define change? How do I define change? I found it very difficult to define change, and the more I tried to define it, the more difficult it got. But that seemed to be a good reason ready for pursuing the whole idea and looking further at it. Now, there are ways of measuring change. There are key indicators that you can use. And at the end of the millennium, I I do this for a number of uh, core essentials. And I I, I took Maslow's hierarchy, for example, and I, I measured... The, the impact of war on civilizations. I measured the change in terms of homicide rates and things like this, so security. And it really struck me how not only do we underestimate change in the Middle Ages because of its lack of technology, but we also underestimate change in the modern world because we underestimate the degree to which technology has simply allowed people to live. Things like artificial fertilizers, which support the world's massive population today. Well, when I was asking people about which century saw the most change, no one said the 20th century because of artificial fertilizers. But technology in this sense is why 40% of the planet is able to survive. So these features have to be considered too in any reckoning of change. Now, at the end of millennium, I use a number of key indicators and come up with the conclusion that, well, modern people aren't really very wrong in their estimates of the modern world changing so much. They're they're just wrong for the reasons why it is, the, 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 the emphasis of change. But at the same time, you can take a completely different definition of change, for example, perceptions of the world, and come up with a very, very different answer. I prefer the answer at the end of millennium because I think basically life and death are the the key issues which um, really determine the the matter. But if we think about humanity as a species and don't care so much about the individuals and we just want to know what mankind knows, then if you think about the Middle Ages in terms of horizons – well, it went from a horizon in which people did not travel very far, uh, unless you were one of the Vikings, of course, to one in which people had circumnavigated the earth. People did, within their communities, travel quite a long way. Certainly in medieval England, um, long-distance travel was possible and frequent. People, uh, the, the horizon of memory, if you think in terms of the whole of the British Isles, probably produced fewer than a million words per year at the beginning of the 11th century, and yet was turning out, including books, more than 10 billion words a year by the last decade of the 16th century. So there is this huge turnaround, this huge uh, alteration of horizons and perception, 
the horizon of memory. I mentioned the horizon of travel, the horizon of trade, the horizon of medicine. I mean, the idea that you can do something physically to help your physical well-being. You don't just have to pray to God. These are huge changes, uh, and they're about the perception of our place in the world. And if you prioritize that sort of change, you'll come up with a very different answer. The wonderful thing about your book is that over the course of the you, you divide it into the chapters of, of centuries, the 11th, the 12th, and 13th. And, and over the course of those centuries, I mean, you touch on the Black Death, the Age of Discovery, printed books and literacy, Reformation, Scientific Revolution, Agricultural Revolution, Industrial Revolution. I mean, you hit all of the kind of marks that people would associate with change. But you you also point out that it's change, the seed can be planted in one century and not bloom for for another. In other words, it it doesn't spring out of invention. It 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 has to meet a need. It has to meet. Uh, well, explain that. Yes, I mean the, the classic example I, I, I cite in the book is the compass. The compass is invented in the 12th century, possibly even earlier, but certainly by the end of the 12th century. But it's not the invention of the compass that changes the world, and this runs directly contrary to what we think about technology and change, which is more or less that somebody has a great idea, they demonstrate it to somebody else who realizes it's a great idea, and then it spreads. But it doesn't spread if there is no need for it. And you do need this prior need for a great invention or a possibly great invention to change the world, to, to use that old cliche. So it's not until the 16th century, really, that the, well, 15th century, that the compass really comes into its own. And the navigation advances so much in the 16th century, you could say it's not until the 16th century that the compass comes into its own. So it's not a case of the invention changing the world. It's the need actually takes on the invention and then does something with it, runs with the ball, you might say. And you can see this over and over again, because uh, I'm coming back to artificial fertilizers. There was a need for this at the time. And of course, the, the invention fulfilled that need. And that was why it became such a popular Thing and why the, the, the world changed as a result. It wasn't simply a good idea. As in the 16th century, I mean, the rise of printed books and, and literacy meets a an urgent need yeah. for people who want to read the Bible, I, I assume. Absolutely, yeah. So the Bible is really the crucial book. I mean, that's the one thing that everybody wants to read for themselves because it gives them a, a personal relationship with God. And once you have the Bible in your own language, you can teach yourself to read. And then that personal relationship with God, which you desired so much, of flowers into a, a personal relationship with all sorts of other areas of knowledge. So it's a terrific period of change um, because of this, this desire, this desire to, to understand God at the time. You also, at the end of each one of your ch- chapters, remark on, on a principal agent. Give us some examples of that. I mean, pick three or four yeah. that, that come to your mind. All right. Well, I've got to say, I've been criticized more for this than any other aspect of the book, because, of course, you get into the area where people have their heroes. In the 19th century, I quote about 10 candidates who could be considered the principal agent of change, the, the person who had more effect on the lives of the contemporaries than anybody else. 
In the end, I decided to be quite controversial. I went for Karl Marx for the 19th century. But the number of people who told yeah. me I should have chosen Charles Darwin is quite a lot. I'll <laughs> leave it at that. I'm also interested in the 19th century in the way that photography changes our idea of what the truth is. Um, uh, and if I can just put this in a little nutshell, if you think in terms of any pictorial Im uh, uh, image of, let's say, the Napoleonic Wars, in seeing it, you know that the artist has selected the scene, selected the person there, selected the way he's going to portray things. And everything is a, a matter of art. If you see a war photograph from 100 years later, uh, in, you instinctively think that that's the way it really was. Yes, there has been an arrangement of the shot, but what you're seeing is what there was before you. Now, if you think about the earlier period again, that artistry, that art of the artist showing a war scene or whatever, actually is a, um, indicative of all descriptions, whether they be verbal or everything else. Everything was understood to be processed through the art of the writer, or the art of the, 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 the painter, etc. But later we have this idea of truth, and we have, at that point, the beginnings of forensics and proof and a, a very different attitude in, uh, in people's philosophy and daily life. Now, in that sense, you could say that the key characters behind the photograph are really the, 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 the key agents of change for the 19th century. So uh, Daguerre and Fox Talbot and people like that. You can argue these things in many, many ways. For the 14th century, I was very controversial in picking an English king. Wait, before we leave that, the, uh, you also make the wonderful point, talking about photography, is that it does yeah. for society what the mirror did for individuals in the 15th century. So the society begins to get a first and uh, unmediated look at itself. Uh, and I think this sort of self-reflection is one of the big stories of the last thousand years, one of those stories which is not often told in these terms. I mean, you mentioned the mirror there. I mean, I, I, I don't think we've really come to terms yet with the historical importance of the mirror and how much it changed ourselves. Um, and this is something I've been thinking about quite a lot recently. I did a, a keynote lecture at the University of Southampton recently on, on the development of the sense of self and based around the, the, the mirror in the Middle Ages. Because if people don't have a sense of self, they can't correspond with uh, sort of patterns of how selves are meant or selves are meant to behave. There's some work by psychologists in 1970 which have been proven over and over again to have validity in that the more of a sense of self an individual has, the more they can be made to conform to certain patterns or encouraged to operate in certain ways. They can be disciplined much more easily, etc. And you can see this as part of the, the civilizing process, as Norbert Elias called it. So that the sense of self growing over the Middle Ages correlates with the declining violence in society. Now, if you take this through to the modern age and the, the, the society's own sense of itself, and I would say culminating in 1968 with our first picture of Earth from outer space, this long story of mankind coming to know, know itself, to follow the Apollonian dictate, um, then I think we see huge changes and a civilizing effect on the whole of society. Right. I mean, you have a lot of 19th century books uh, 
magnificent flying machines before the invention of the of the before the Wright brothers. Right. In the 19th century, the one that I, I live with every day, because I live in a small town which used to have a railway line coming to it. This is a small town on the edge of Dartmoor, a large plateau in, in the southwest of England. Now, it was a, a real center for itself. You had wheelwrights, you had carters, you had lots of inns. Everything was, it was a real center until the railways came. It became had the life sucked out of it through the railways. The railways obviously developed in England really, really rapidly. And communities were just torn apart as young people sought opportunities in towns. You see mass demographic change as a result of the railways. And the communications at the same time as the, the telegraph ran along the railways obviously changed people's perception of place. Communities are altered profoundly and the whole sense of place and what a place offers changes profoundly. Our idea of urbanization, what we take for granted now, of course, is a 19th century phenomenon. At the beginning of the 19th century, then uh, England was 20% uh, people lived in a a town. By the end of the century, it's 80%. So it's a phenomenal change and a breakdown of a lot of communities uh, and a resurgence of, uh, well, a a first-time growth, actually, of uh, the cities uh, as we know it. That last one you mentioned for the 20th century, the invention of the future, was one I wanted to throw in there as a curved ball at the end because a lot of the changes of the 20th century are ones we do not appreciate, we do not take for, well, we take for granted. But at the start of the 19th century, at the start of the 20th century, I beg your pardon, there was very little thinking ahead. There was very little planning ahead. People speculated about technological change in the future. People came up with the idea of the tank 17 years before they actually built any tanks. They they speculated that you could have moving castles on land. But no one really actually wrote about the future as something you could plan and discuss. It was still fantasy. It was still utopia. Also, I mean, I think you make the point that in the 20th century, when people begin to invent the future or, or look for the future, they tend to be, at least in the first half of the century, optimistic and and but that now toward the end well first at the end of the 20th century and continuing now into the 21st people that the tendency is to look toward the future uh, with with fear and trembling in into a, a a dark unknown Oh, absolutely. And you have you know, socialist utopias in um, uh, Morris and people like that. You have a, a real sense of the future will be different. But if you look at a newspaper from 1900, it is still full of what has happened. There is nothing about what will happen in a, in a newspaper from that period. Whereas if you look at a newspaper today, it will have forecasts which are economic, forecasts which are meteorological, but also it will tell you about what medicines are likely to come on the market because of new breakthroughs. A lot of our discussion, a lot of our uh, everyday narrative is about what life will be like in the future. It might be only a few days in the future. It might be a few years in the future. Or in the case of, um, I, I have a, uh, a position on the, the, the local authority here, uh, a, a minor political role. And here we plan ahead for the next 20 years, where we're going to be putting houses for the next 20 years, where our waste is going to be uh, incinerated or buried, etc. So we have a constant dialogue with the future. And it's that point which I think is the, the, the uh, focuses in on this this 
seminal moment in 1968 where we, we saw the Earth from outer space and we understand that it doesn't matter which faith you are a part of, if you, even if you're part of no faith, that Earth floating in space is all we have and all we will ever have in a realistic economic sense. So we just have to plan much more carefully what we do with it. This is the marvelous conclusion of your book when you say that an understanding of change and why it matters and and this is leading you in that direction and you talk about the you cannot you cannot have limitless growth with uh limited resources i mean they don't go together and so you draw uh among the futures you you mentioned the sustainable future but you also talk about the universal crisis calamity so make your point as to what would it, what would it entail to find our way into a sustainable future a sustainable future has to see a decline in the world's population growth there is no doubt about that but i think everybody acknowledges that worldwide obviously the question is how you manage that I mean, Malthus pointed out 200 years ago that if the population carried on expanding as it was in his day, then very soon there wouldn't be enough room for everybody on Earth to stand up. Um, So he he makes that point and has made that point a long time ago. The sustainable future has to be uh, a decline in population growth and a, a method by which we can sustainably generate energy. We have a lot of land whereby we can grow enough food for the world's population. There is no reason why we cannot sustain a very large population on Earth, even a larger population than we have at the moment. But it cannot carry on growing after it has got to a larger size because we do need to stabilize everything on a a planet of a finite size with finite resources. Also, because if we run out of fossil fuel, we will have to use the land to grow biofuel. Biofuel, yes. Well, you hear this argument a lot in this country uh, that, uh, well, as and when um, oil declines, we will simply use sustainable energy. That's all very well. But sustaining, uh, producing that sustainable energy is proving very, very difficult. A lot of people are against large wind farms on land. It's proving very controversial to uh, have a lot of um, energy. And, of course, there is the, 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 the blight on the landscape when you have very large um, solar farms. So this country is actually lagging behind, really, when it comes to that sustainable uh, energy development. The one area everybody says, oh, you can develop biodiesel. But the amount of land you have to give over for uh, the crops to produce biodiesel is massive. And I think people have not got a grasp on the proportions necessary. We could live sustainably, but we couldn't do it if we were all going to be uh, living on biodiesel and living as we are now. We do need to curtail our lifestyles. We can imagine a future with a, a large population and say, travel as a rationed thing where we try and encourage food to be produced locally um, and a a sustainable future where people don't move about so much but live quite happily in their communities. So there are lots of futures possible but unfettered um, population growth with not enough energy going or not enough uh, political will going into finding sustainable energy is a recipe for disaster in the long term. But also you talk about no matter what kind of sustainable future we we arrive at, it will entail a, a reduced standard of limit living. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, the longer that the population increases, the land issue that I mentioned earlier is the key thing that comes back. And 
where you have a population that's growing and people do not have access to land to build houses, etc., or find food prices increasing beyond their means, their standard of living will decrease. And their political involvement is likely to decrease as well as they grow less wealthy proportionally, less influential, more um, uh, concerned with the basics of how you get by as people are at the bottom of society rather than taking a, a positive um, attitude or a, um, active involvement in, in uh, a sustainable economy as a, as a whole. I see that the ultimately whichever way you want to argue technology and uh, if you think the technology will save all our um, energy problems, and our food problems, that's fine if you want to argue that. But you still come back to this problem of we are not going to be able to make more land. Every political party in this country uh, agrees that we need many, many more houses to, to solve, our, solve our, our housing problem. The government is talking about 200,000 uh, houses needed per year. And, of course, it wants to prejudice all development decisions in favor of building those houses. But where is the land coming from? We can't create that much more land that easily. But you also suggest that no matter what happens in terms of what kind of sustainable future we manage to uh, make for ourselves, democracy is probably not going to sustain itself. I I think it's vulnerable because I think the more hard-pressed people get as the population of the earth grows to the the extremes, then I think it's going to result in uh, a large number of people almost voluntarily uh, opting out of democracy because they will prioritize more immediate concerns. And ironically, you can see a parallel of an extreme nature a thousand years ago when one of the major reasons why people were enslaved in the, 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 the 10th and 11th centuries was because they sold their children into slavery because they simply couldn't afford to feed them or they sold themselves into slavery in some cases because they couldn't afford to eat otherwise. The impoverishment of people at the bottom of society means they fall out of democracy. And I see, um, when I read reports of this happening in certain countries in the world, Russia, for example, is said to have over half a million people living in conditions that are equivalent to slavery, and yet you have phenomenal wealth in that country too. So I see these inequalities as perhaps being a a feature of a sustainable um, society moving forward. So it it requires a form of hierarchy, social arrangement, more like the one in place in, in let's say, 1800 than, than in 1900, right? Yes. I, mean, I, I, I thought in the 1800s you have a number of people there who are uh, not particularly bothered that they do not have the vote because their, their, their concerns were more immediate about feeding a family, etc. But as a, so, I do not see the sustainable future as being one which is harmonious and democratic, though I would really like to believe that. And if anybody can show me I'm wrong, I'd be very... (laughs) So would many of your fellow men, I am sure, because on the non-sustainable future, the one you call universal crisis, how does that turn out? Well, I'm constantly minded that... The Roman Empire was an extremely civilized organization, call it what you will. And when it collapsed, it collapsed in such a way that the Dark Ages is a valid term because it actually destroyed the records of its own collapse, which I find a really interesting feature of human development. 
And I think when a society collapses in, in that way, so that written records are just completely lost, there is, there is no civilized record of the society in decline, then I think, well, that wasn't planned. That was a society just in total meltdown. And you can see that happening again. That's what I think is the, the most extreme interpretation. You basically have a, the, the much feared breakdown of law and order as the economic systems of the world seize up. People do not have a means to uh, move food around. Populations are desperate. They, they start moving around out of control. I can see it could happen. Um, and I think the lessons of history ought to keep our eyes open to these terrible possibilities. I am reasonably sure that it's not going to happen, but I don't think we should rule it out. What I see is more likely is something more akin to the, 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 the tyranny of states where uh, individuals take control. Well, let, let, let me now go to the end of your... Tra- I, I, this is, to, to my mind, Ian, this is a marvelous book. Thank and you. And the way you. The way you end it is I'd ask you to read the last uh, five, six sentences because although you can see many dismal outcomes you 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 still remain uh optimistic and why is that so what doesn't change what doesn't change well these are the last last uh, lines of the book at the end of it all i find myself wondering what hasn't changed over the last thousand years and what won't change over the next at first Those questions seem vast and overwhelming. But then I think about them again. I picture a troubadour singing in the shadows of a hall fire. I imagine thousands of people walking beneath the overhanging eaves of narrow streets to see Shakespeare's plays. I hear the shouts of drunken farm workers in the candlelit gloom of a 17th century inn as Jan Steen studies their ruddy faces, preparing to paint them. The simplicity of the answer makes me smile. What doesn't change is that we find so many things in life worthwhile. Love, beauty, children, the comfort of friends telling jokes, the joy of eating and drinking together, storytelling, wit, laughter, music, the sound of the sea, the warmth of the sun, looking at the moon and stars, singing and dancing. What won't change? Everything that allows us to lose ourselves in the moment. Everything that is worth dreaming about. Everything that is without price. That's a wonderful uh, two paragraphs, and and, uh, I'm truly uh, delighted to become acquainted with your book. Now, Ian, uh, thank you for talking to us today about your new book, Millennium, How Civilization Has Changed Over a Thousand Years. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.